Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for you have been so good to us. And Lord, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for its comprehensive guidance. We thank you that it is adequate for everything that we face. We thank you that it teaches us how to respond. And Lord, we pray that you would use these three psalms before us this morning to make us Christ-like. And we pray that you would make us holy. And we pray that you would keep us from any kind of attitude that would have us be more holy than the Bible itself, more holy than the, the words the Holy Spirit has inspired. So, Lord, we ask for your help now and your blessing. And we pray that you'd keep us from error. And we ask, Lord, that you'd be glorified. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> this is a sermon that we're going to need to put our big boy pants on for. <laughs> the Bible is a serious book. And the Bible is seriously confrontational. And so as we turn this morning to these three psalms, Psalms 52, 53, and 54, I want to begin by reminding you of what the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 5.14, where he said, Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Okay, so to, to eat this solid food of these three psalms, we're going to need to distinguish good from evil. And in particular, that means that that as we listen earlier in the service, Jake read uh, this passage from 1 Samuel, and in that passage, Saul says to people who have betrayed David to him, Saul says to those people, blessed be you by Yahweh, right? So Saul is blessing those people by the Lord, and they have betrayed the Lord's anointed. If you can't discern good from evil, if you can't respond to Saul in that situation with a feeling that, that knows and, and a certainty that says, you are a wicked hypocrite to invoke the name of the Lord against the Lord's anointed. If you can't do that, you're not going to understand that passage. And you are certainly not going to understand the Psalms before us. Because the Psalms before us are presupposing that David is in the right and that Saul and anyone aligned with him is fully and completely satanic. That's what we're dealing with here. So as we, as we turn to, to Psalm 52, I need to tell you another story from Samuel that, that we have not read this morning. And in that story, um, it, you know, we always have to guard our hearts here. Because when we encounter stories like this, or when we encounter situations like this, we are so prone, so prone to think, well, if that was me, I would be able to navigate those waters. I would have been able to defuse this conflict. Saul wouldn't have tried to kill me because I would have handled myself more appropriately in that situation. And that's, that's the way we're tempted to feel when our brothers and sisters in this culture today are persecuted, right? 
When, when people today face opposition for Christianity, our hearts, it's like we're spring-loaded to think, well, I wouldn't have provoked that response to Christianity. I would have been more Christ-like, and I would have been wiser, and I would have handled myself better, and they wouldn't have responded to me that way. What I'm asking you to do right now is just take all those thoughts and push them to the side and recognize that in these situations, it wasn't David, David's fault that the prophet Samuel came to him and anointed him king. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't provocative of David for him to go out to battle and kill Goliath. And David, didn't do, David was actually serving Saul, helping Saul, when Saul decided to start throwing spears at him. So David didn't do anything inappropriate he didn't do anything wrong to provoke Saul deciding, I'm going to kill that man. It simply came down to Saul wanted his own kingdom, not God's kingdom. Saul wanted himself to be king, not David, who was God's king. And so David, he was not trying to provoke Saul. He fled. And, and when he fled, he came to this, this priest that we read about in the superscription of Psalm 52. Psalm 52, the superscription says to the choir master, a mosquito of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So what had happened is Saul was trying to kill David. David flees from Saul's court. And David goes to this guy, Ahimelech. And there are a lot of options open to David at that moment. He could say to Ahimelech, the king has gone crazy and is trying to kill me. But David doesn't do that. David, I would suggest to you, is actually trying to protect Saul's reputation, even though Saul is trying to kill him. And so Ahimelech comes out to David and he says, are you, what, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And David says, I come in peace. He says, actually, I'm, 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 flee I'm on a mission from Saul. He doesn't say anything negative about Saul. And he says, I need your help. And, and he totally preserves this guy's innocence. And the guy supplies David with what he needs, and David goes on about his business, fleeing from Saul. But this guy, Doag, was there. And Doag goes back, and he tells Saul, Ahimelech helped David. But Ahimelech didn't know that Saul was trying to kill David. Ahimelech thought, hey, David is the king's son-in-law. David is a prince in Israel. David's a great guy. He's one of us. In response to that, Saul commissions Doeg to go and murder Ahimelech. And, and let me read to you 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse, 20, uh, verse, verse 9, 18. The king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. The priests! These are not soldiers. This guy Doeg, the Edomite, is going to murder these priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. This is a massacre. It's a massacre of men who are devoted to the worship of Yahweh. And then verse 19, and Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, he puts the city under the ban, both man and woman, child and infant, Ox and donkey and sheep he put to the sword. These people didn't need to die. These people did not. This is murderous brutality. This is an atrocity. 
These are war crimes. These are crimes against humanity. That's who we're responding to here in Psalm 52. So the Bible is a serious book. The Bible is ready to speak truth to people who do things like this. That's who David is addressing here in Psalm 52. So that's the setting. And in verses 1 through 4 here of Psalm 52, David is going to denounce what has been done by Doeg. He seems to be addressing Doeg in particular. And what he says to him there in verse 1 is, Why do you boast of evil? Now, I I don't know that Doeg was out there high-fiving people in response to this. I think perhaps more this is a response to Doeg's whole life and the whole direction of his life. And, and what we need to understand is Doeg's worldview versus David's worldview because we're really going to be dealing with this kind of thing through these three psalms. In Doeg's world, what the God of the Bible says doesn't matter. What matters is who's in charge. And Saul's in charge. And so in Doeg's world, I'm going to get in, in cahoots with the guy in charge And that is going to put me in good standing to prosper in the world. In David's world, it doesn't matter what human being is in charge. What matters is that the God of the Bible is alive. And the God of the Bible has determined good and evil. And if the human king decides, well, I'm going to take what the Bible says is evil and make it good. And I'm going to take what the Bible says is good and make it evil. He has no power to bring that about. So David is declaring, so Saul has said to Doeg, the the authority, the human authority has said to Doeg, go kill the priests. And Doeg does it. This is the right thing to do because the king has commanded it. And David is saying, no, that was evil. Why do you boast of evil? And then I think there's sarcastic scorn in the words, oh, mighty man. The, the, The Christian standard Bible renders this, you hero. Why do you boast of evil, you hero? As though this was heroic, what Doeg had done. As though it was somehow valorous for him to go and slaughter these innocent women and children and infants and priests. Hero, mighty man, boasting of evil. And here's David's response here in verse 1. And this has to be our response The steadfast love of God endures all the day. I don't care how powerful you look. I don't care what weapons you have. I don't care who has authorized your action. The steadfast love of the Lord will never cease. And there will never be a moment in the day when that steadfast love does not stand against what you wicked people have done. That's what David is saying. Doeg The steadfast love of God endures all the day, and that guarantees that what you have done will always be evil. And it guarantees that your only way of escape is to repent. David continues, and all through here, he's he's addressing the words that are spoken. Verse 1, why do you boast of evil? Verse 2, your tongue plots Verse 3, you love lying more than speaking what is right. Verse 4, you love all words that devour. So David is responding not just to Doeg's actions, but to the way that people talk about these things. 
the, the culture, the atmospheric influence that, that makes people start to think, well, maybe it was wrong for the priest to help David against Saul. No, it was not wrong. Those are lying words. Verse 2 there. Your tongue plots destruction. And, and you know, we've been looking at these psalms in the context of the whole book of the Psalter. And I think when, we, when we've got David, the anointed of the Lord, responding to an enemy, we should automatically think of Psalm 2, 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples join together? They, they make these plans against the Lord and against his anointed. Your, your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. So, so this, ra- this is a cutting tongue, it's a killing tongue, and it's working deceit. It's, it's telling lies about what's true and good and righteous, and it's bringing about the death of innocent people. And David knows that what our tongues say reflects what our hearts love. So if, if you want to take stock of where your heart is, just listen to what your tongue does. Just, just pay attention to the words that come out of your mouth, and that'll be a good indication of what preoccupies you on the inside. Verse 3, David says to Doeg, you love evil more than good. And that's what this has come down to. Doeg loves evil. He loves Saul and Saul's agenda. He loves ingratiating himself to Saul so that he can advance himself more than sparing the innocent lives of these people who have been massacred. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. And then I think that this Selah is here so that we will pause and let these words land on us. And, and perhaps also so that we will pause and, and take stock of our hearts and say to ourselves, what comes out of my mouth? What comes out of my heart? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then David continues in verse 4. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. So David just addresses the hero as deceitful tongue. It's almost like calling him worm tongue. You deceitful tongue. And he loves words that devour. He loves programs that destroy people, that swallow people whole, as witnessed by what happened there at Nob and to those 85 men who wore the linen ephod. So so this is the, the opening response to the wicked. And, and we want to be people who have the ability to discern good from evil. We also, I think, want to learn from the scriptures the ability to to know when to bless those who persecute and when to pray a prayer like Psalm 52, 1 through 4. And and I would would, uh, make a couple of suggestions here. Uh, I would suggest that, that it is true that this is a scorching response to Doeg. I mean, this is... This is a serrated knife edge, these words that David is speaking to Doeg. And I would also suggest that this is kindness. Because Doeg is sailing along 
in, in, in the strength of his might, thinking, I'm going to prevail. And David is, there, there's a magazine in our culture, National Review, and their tagline is, standing athwart the culture, yelling, stop. And that's sort of what David is doing here. David is standing athwart Doag, yelling, no, you're not going to get away with this. What you have determined to be good is not going to succeed. So, and that, that's a kind thing for David to do. It's a kind thing for him to say, no, you're not loving good, you're loving evil. And he, he warns him of judgment. Look at verse 5. God will break you down forever. As mighty as you think you are, if you continue on this path, if you don't repent, if you don't turn to the Lord, he's going to break you down and it will be an everlasting destruction. That's a kind thing to say to someone who, who thinks that they can slaughter the priests of the Lord and put a, a city in Israel under the ban. God will break you down forever. And then it, it doesn't matter how your reinforcements might be or how, how mighty your, your stronghold or your tent or whatever. Look at verse 5 there. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. This is the opposite of the blessed man whose roots are down deep in that rich soil that's watered by streams of water. This is a, a man who's being symbolized by a tree and what's happening here is Yahweh is reaching down and grabbing the trunk of that thing and yanking it right out of the ground. He is going to be uprooted from the land of the living. So, number one, I would say that in an unexpected way, it's actually a blessing for the wicked to hear words like this because it's through the confrontation of judgment, it's through the confrontation of the truth that they realize I'm in danger and what I have done is actually wrong. And if I don't turn, I will be destroyed. And that's what the Lord uses to turn people to himself. That's what the Lord uses to, to make people realize, I need somebody to save me from the wrath of this God. Second, I would say that a, a psalm like this, words like this, are useful to our own souls. They're useful to our own souls so that even if you don't, even if you don't communicate these words to someone who's wronged you, just praying through these words, I think, will reassure you of what is right and what is wrong and reassure you that God will judge and enable you to obey Romans 12, 19. Never uh, repay evil for evil. Do not take vengeance, but leave it to the Lord for it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. So psalms like these, these are the ones that we pray while we wait for, Psalm, for Romans 12, 19 to be fulfilled. I hope nobody, I hope nobody is sitting here thinking, I would never pray words like this. Don't be more holy than the Bible. Don't think that you're going to achieve a righteous standard of love or sympathy or something like this that is better than God's own standard. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit. David says to the wicked man there in verse 5, God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. And then he describes the response of the righteous here. And we have to guard our hearts here again too. Because David says in verse 6, the righteous shall see 
and fear. Okay, so that I think there's a kind of process here in the, in the response of the righteous. The first response is the wrath of God is really impressive. The wrath of God is terrifying. The wrath of God is swift, forceful, complete, destructive, awful, and I'm not totally innocent. I deserve that wrath. I think, I think the righteous, they see and they fear God. They know. But then those who are hidden in Christ, those who are hidden in God's mercy because of their response to him by faith, and, and if you're wondering here how to get from, from the side of the wicked to the side of the Lord, you, you need to turn away from your sins and you need to put your trust and hope in Jesus and in what the Bible says. You, you, need, to, you need to trust the Lord. That, that's how you need to respond. But then look at what the righteous go on to do here in verse 6. They see, they fear, and shall laugh at him. What's going on with that? Well, I think what we have to see here is that um, the same way that the Lord responded, remember Psalm 2? Um, the one enthroned in the heavens laughs. The, these 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 uh, nations, they're raging, they're plotting together against the Lord and against his Messiah. They're planning to overthrow the, the king of the universe, the maker of the world. And they're thinking that they can overthrow him by overcoming his king, right? This is what happened at the crucifixion. And, and the Lord's response to this is to laugh, to hold them in derision. This is not the only place it says the Lord responds this way. Back in Psalm 37, verse 13, I believe it is. Um, the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. And so the righteous are being conformed to the character of the Lord. The, the righteous respond to the wicked the same way that the Lord responds to the wicked. But we, we, don't, we shouldn't conclude, I don't think, that, that this is some sort of cheap smugness. It's not some sort of self-righteous, smug, uh, sinful response when the righteous laugh at the wicked. Rather, I think we should view this as a celebration in the hearts of those who are delivered and vindicated and avenged and satisfied by the justice of the Lord. Over in the book of Revelation, uh, these, these martyrs, are under the throne, and they're crying out to the Lord, how long until you avenge our blood and the blood of all those slain for your name? And the Lord says, he, he, he gives them white garments and tells them to wait a little longer until the full number of their, of their brothers is complete. When he avenges their blood, there will be a raucous celebration of God's goodness. So, so the righteous... I, don't be more pious than the Bible. Don't think, well, it's wrong to laugh at people when they get their comeuppance. No, it's right to celebrate God's goodness. And it's right to say, those people are incredibly stupid to think they're going to get away with that. Laughably stupid. It doesn't feel that way right now, does it? It feels like they've got all the levers of power. They've got all the channels of influence. They have all the authority in the world. They are woefully foolish the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying 
See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. So there's a, there's a mocking of these people. And then there's a contrast in verse 8 with the righteous, where the, where the righteous is described like the, the blessed tree from Psalm 1. And the tree is planted uh, in what, what may be a reference to uh, the temple, like the temple courts, or it might be a reference to the cosmic temple, which the temple in Jerusalem symbolized. Uh, at, at any rate, the, the tree is planted in the land of the living in the presence of God. Look at what he says there in verse 8. I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. So you've got one tree that's uprooted from the land of the living, and the other tree is luxuriant, and it's, it's resplendent and flourishing. And, and then David goes on to say, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. So David responds here to, I think, to Doeg the Edomite. And then we're, we're moving in the same trajectory as we continue into Psalm 53. But if you've been here or if you're a regular reader of the Psalms, you should notice that Psalm 53 seems very familiar. In fact, there, there's only a few changes between, uh, from Psalm 14 to Psalm 53. Uh, other, than, other than two things happen. Um, all, all the references to Yahweh, which are Lord, those get changed to God in Psalm 53. They were Yahweh in Psalm 14. They're, they're uh, God in Psalm 53. And then verse, uh, verse 5 is different from the corresponding section back in Psalm 14. Other than that, these two psalms are basically identical to one another. Uh, so let's walk through this. We'll walk through this quickly. To the choir master, according to Mahalath, a masculine of David, David says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Uh, I think that it's probably the case that David is not responding to a philosophical atheist. I think he's probably re responding to a functional atheist. Because in, in that world, that atheism really wasn't a thing yet. It wasn't really a, a, an accepted position in David's world, everybody had gods. Everybody had deities that they looked to. But you did have people for whom those deities were basically irrelevant. They would give it lip service, but then they would just go do whatever they wanted to do. So I think David is responding here to functional atheism. And, and these are people who think that they're going to get away with whatever they want to get away with. He continues there in verse 1. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? Now, to that point, we're basically the same as Psalm 14. And, and I want to I sort of lift up here and make a suggestion about why you would have Psalm 14 essentially reproduced in Psalm 53, okay? So I'm going to make a suggestion that, 
that has to do with the way that I think there's an impressionistic sort of narrative sequence unfolding across the book of Psalms. And, and what I would propose to you, you be a Berean. You take these, these thoughts, you go read your Bible, you think about it, test everything and hold on to what is good. What I would propose is that there, there's a, a, a well-known narrative in the book of Samuel that is being tracked with here in the book of Psalms. So in the book of Samuel, David is anointed king in 1 Samuel 16, and then almost immediately he begins to be persecuted by, by Saul. Saul's trying to kill him. And, and that really takes the rest of 1 Samuel. And then in the early chapters of 2 Samuel, David is finally enthroned as king, and then uh, he, he receives the promises in 2 Samuel 7 about how the Lord's going to raise up his descendant and, and he'll reign forever. And then he begins to expand Israel in every direction in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And then in chapter 11, David sins with Bathsheba. And after that, it's all pain and trouble and sorrow again. And in particular, uh, David begins to be persecuted by his own son, Absalom. In the Psalter, you've got Psalm 2, where, where the Lord says, uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you, repeating the language of 2 Samuel 7, so it's like David is being identified as king. And then the superscription of Psalm 3 introduces the persecution of Absalom. And David is dealing, he's struggling through all this persecution with Absalom, really all through book 1, uh, the first 41 Psalms. Near the end of uh, the first 41 Psalms, remember Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He lifted me up and out of the miry pit. So it's like David is finally delivered. And then it, Psalm 45, you know, the psalm of celebration of the king, uh, the city in Psalm 46, and then all the nations are called to worship the Lord in the psalms that follow. And, and, and then you get Psalm 51, which recalls the sin with Bathsheba. And now we've got a new persecution. So, so you see the sequence both in Samuel and Saul's, Psalms, uh, anointed king, persecuted, established, persecuted, with Bathsheba in there prior to the persecution. I think that's the sequence. But in Psalms, instead of Absalom coming second and Saul coming first, Absalom comes first and Saul comes second. Why, why would that be? Well, I think the reason for it is because the psalmists are suggesting uh, the people that oppose the Lord's king are all the same. The, the psalmists want you to see the similarities between Absalom and Saul. They're both really attractive in worldly terms. They seem really powerful in worldly terms, and they both meet the same kinds of end. They, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. And, and by setting up this pattern, it lays the framework, it lays the groundwork for somebody who's going to come along and say, you foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that was written. Was it not necessary for the Messiah first to suffer and then to enter into his glory? Why would Jesus say something like that? Well, because David suffered and then entered into glory. And you've got all these psalms about the, the suffering of, of the anointed king. So I would suggest that that's what's going on here in this repetition. That's what's being uh, driven home to us. Um, through this return to, to difficulty here in these, this selection of psalms. We're to Psalm 14, verse 5, where at this point, David, speaking of the wicked, says of them, there they are in great terror, where there is no terror. This is like that Proverbs 
Proverbs 28.1, the wicked man flees when no one is pursuing. If, if you don't honor the Lord, if you don't follow the Lord, if you don't live in the Lord's ways, you will be a terrified person. You'll be jumpy. You'll be, you'll be afraid when there's nothing to fear. But Proverbs 28.1 says the righteous are as bold as a lion. There they are in great terror where there is no terror. And then he explains, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. There's not a, there's not a direct quotation of that verse near the end of Exodus 14, but I think there's a sort of a, an evocation of the image of Israel seeing the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the shore after the Red Sea has closed on them, after the Egyptians had encamped against Israel. And then in, at the end of verse 5, you put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Now, it's, it's interesting how there's this interplay. You see this all over the Bible. God scatters their bones, but David speaking, I think, to the future king, you, a human, you put them to shame. So God does the victory. God accomplishes the victory through the one who he has chosen to establish as king. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And then uh, we have Psalm 54, which is moving in these same directions. And, and, and yet there's something, I think there's a, there's a little twist, there's a little tweak that's added here that's important for us to see. So this is, this is addressing the situation that Jake read about earlier in the service. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mosquito of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? So these guys think they're serving the cause of truth and righteousness and justice. But in reality, they're serving the cause of Satan by opposing the Lord and his anointed king. And look at what David says here in verse 1. This is so important for us to see and lay hold of. Oh God, save me by your name. David is appealing to God's character. David is not resting on his superior mobility. You know, he's out there running around with a small band in the wilderness. And he's not thinking, oh, we're going we're to get away because we're fast. David is not relying on his savvy, on his craftiness, on his cleverness. He's not relying on the men with him to defend him. He's relying on the Lord. And this is what we must turn to. Oh God, save me by your name. We, we all face mortal enemies, things that would devour and destroy us. Satan is prowling around, and our own hearts are treacherous. We got to pray like this. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. You do it for your name in your power. That's what David is praying. Oh God, he's beseeching the Lord in verse 2. Hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. And then he describes the situation in verse 3. Strangers have risen against me. We don't know too much about the Ziphites. This may indicate that they were not Israelites. He says, strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. 
the Ziphites, Doeg, Saul, merciless, powerful people. And then in keeping with that, uh, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And, and uh, this, these, these are the people who would not make God their refuge in 52.7. He says here at the end of 54.3, they do not set God before themselves. They're not mindful of the Lord. And then this Selah. And then the response. And, and, and for David, this is what he always returns to. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. This is why he says things like, if God is for me, who can be against me? This is what informs Paul as he, as he comes to that glorious conclusion at the end of Romans 8, saying, what, what can separate us? And then he goes through this litany of things that are not going to overcome the Lord. Yesterday I was um, thinking about this sermon and I was uh, reading some things online and I, I read about um, Andre the Giant. This guy was huge. He was seven feet four inches tall, and across the course of his, his career, he weighed between 470 and 520 pounds. And, and the reason I'm telling you this is because there was a long, this guy was massive. I mean, think about a man 500 pounds and seven feet four inches tall, and he's wrestling other people. They got no chance. They got no chance. And, and in, the, in, the, in what I read about him, uh, at one point, Hulk Hogan body slammed him and defeated him. But they were quick to note, only because Andre had agreed beforehand to allow this to happen, right? Um, in the same way that nobody is going to overcome Andre the Giant, 7'4", 500 pounds, nobody's going to overcome the Lord. Nobody is going to overcome. I mean, multiply, extrapolate that by infinity. Nobody is going to overcome the Lord. God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. And then we see what uh, Willem van Gimmeren calls the boomerang effect of sin in verse 5. This is, you know, we've read in the Psalms about how those who, they lay a snare for the righteous, and that snare winds up entrapping them. They dig a pit for the righteous, and they wind up falling into it. They, they try to shoot arrows at the righteous, and, and their weapons backfire on them. Verse 5 is articulating this reality. He will return the evil to my enemies. Evil is self-defeating. And the Lord has set the universe up so that it's going to rebound. It's going to boomerang on the wicked as they go after the righteous. In your faithfulness, David is again appealing to the Lord's character. He's appealing to what the Lord said of himself in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Save me by your name. This is the name of the Lord. He's a God who is merciful and gracious, who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. God is faithful to his own word. And then David describes how he's going to respond in praise. In the future, when this is done in verses 6 and 7, with a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. You notice how that's in the past? And yet, it hasn't happened yet. But David is so confident that the Lord's going to do it. He has delivered me, as though it's already happened. And my eye, this hasn't happened yet either. My eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Not yet it hasn't, but David is so confident that it will that he's speaking of it in the past tense. 
Um, There's a, a member of our congregation who regularly engages in uh, disputes in the in the in the culture, and um, um, recently uh, he wrote on a passage in the book of Matthew, where the Lord Jesus says this. He says, "I was naked and you clothed me; I was sick and you visited me; I was in prison and you came to me." Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And uh, our brother in Christ said that uh, today when Christians stand with bakers or florists or photographers who don't want to uh, have the culture and, and uh, the society dictate to them what they must do. And so let's untangle some issues here, okay? In, in this society, we have what's called religious liberty. That doesn't mean that we're merely free to gather here and worship and think what we want to think here in this building. We have the free exercise of religion which means that we can go outside these walls and we can live on what this book says. We can live in accordance with what this book says. That's what the First Amendment grants us. Not just freedom to worship, freedom to practice our religion out there in the public square. So that, theoretically, that's supposed to grant a photographer or a florist or a baker the ability to say, um, I don't want to... Um, make a cake for a gay wedding, or I don't want to take the photographs for a gay marriage, or, or whatever. Uh, but religious liberty is eroding, and Christians are being, uh, I would say, Christians are being persecuted. And um, the reason I'm telling you about this is because there was a, an, an article written in a, in a major outlet uh, describing the view that was articulated by our brother in Christ that would say, that those who stand with Christians, who want to practice their religion, exercise their religion, those who do that, are they're standing with the least of these. They're, they're doing what Jesus is describing here, and they're going to receive their reward in the judgment. And this article in a major news outlet written by a person who's a professor at, a, at another theological institution called that, that approach to things wicked theology called our brother in Christ, who's a member here, wicked. So you see what's happening. What's happening in our culture is what the Bible says is right is being turned into what is wrong. And what the Bible says is wrong is being turned into what is right so that we who believe what we believe are holders of wicked theology. And I don't think this is a matter of our brother in Christ engaging in things in inappropriate ways. I don't think this is a matter of, if well, if I had done this, I would have been able to navigate this more carefully. No, I don't think that's what this is about at all. I think this is, are you going to stand with the Lord in the Bible, or are you going to stand with the world? That's what this comes down to. And, and I think that the prayers of Psalms 52, 53, and 54 can help us here. It's a kind and loving thing to say to people, God's wrath is coming. 
The judgment is coming. And the idea that you can stand on that day is laughable. That's a loving thing to say to people. You will not overcome God's judgment. It's also a comforting thing for us to say, I'm going to leave room for God's wrath, but I'm going to call on the Lord to bring that wrath. I'm going to pray these prayers. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help. We want to be those who bless those who persecute us. We also want to be those who warn the wicked of the coming day of destruction. And we want to be those who are fully aligned with you and your cause and your purpose. So, Lord, help us to know how to act in which situation. Give us the wisdom to discern the right response at the right time. And, Father, we pray that you would show mercy to us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us rulers who are wise and just and make it so that there is freedom to exercise our faith in an ongoing way in this culture. But, Lord, if that is taken from us, we pray that you would make us like the apostles who were willing to say we must obey God rather than than men. And Lord, we pray that you would give us senses that are trained by constant practice to discern between good and evil so that, so that, God forbid, if the king declares that it's right to slaughter a city or if the king declares that it's right to put priests to death, we do like David and we flee and we, we find ways to exercise wisdom and to pursue godliness in exile in the wilderness, if we must. But Lord, we pray that you would make us those who please you by the way that we live. So we commit ourselves to you and pray that you'd help us to follow in the footsteps of the one who, when he was reviled, didn't revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to you, the one who judges justly. And we thank you that he bore our sins in his body, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.